Hey there, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Insert Coin Theater podcast. I am your host, Tim. And for this episode, we'll be doing something a little different. It'll be a bit of a pilot for my history of games idea that I have for executing when I am full-time content creation. So I hope that you'll enjoy this. It'll be jumping into the history of Bungie and we'll take you through the first two chapters and we'll probably jump into the other details and chapters at a later time when ever i'm kind of out of ideas for the main show so that said if you enjoy this please let me know shoot me a message on twitter shoot me a message on discord uh, you can find my twitter at insert coin tim and discord is discord.gg ict uh, i'd love to hear from you and if you could just let me know what you think and we'll keep going with it if it is something that you guys enjoy thank you and enjoy the show before we begin I'd like to offer up a couple words of gratitude for two gentlemen who helped me in setting the tone and feel for this show. Stephen Chesterton and Ben Burns, two immensely talented and strapping young lads whose work in the introduction keep us on track. And I just appreciate the efforts and time that you put into helping me bring this idea to fruition. So thank you both very, very much. This project would be way drier than it is without you. You can learn more about the extremely talented voice actor Stephen Chesterton at his website, goldenvo.co. If you're interested in getting some music made for a production or a game, Ben Burns is your man. Check out his website at abstractionmusic.com. I'd also like to touch on the show's aims and goals before we continue into the oft-unknown but relatively well-documented world of video game history. My aim is simple, to bring you as much information about our subject matter as possible. Some of what I say may be off kilter. In fact, I feel it's impossible not to inject at least some opinion into such recent historical data. It'd be foolish to imply that it can stay 100% unbiased with how charged some topics in gaming can be. But I will do my best to make sure that any opinion is as separated from fact so as to not cloud the overall goal, which is to present game history in as complete a way as possible to let us understand where our games have come from and where they may be headed in the future. Without further ado, let's delve into our first edition of the History of Games. The origin for the name of Bungie is a closely guarded secret for the company. In fact, they offered this cryptic message in the history section of their old site. Bear in mind, the term grizzled ancients refers to their most tenured employees. Quote, Although the only ever official explanation reaches new heights of unbelievable lameness, the secret of the actual Bungie name has become so closely guarded that even a few grizzled ancients either don't know or aren't sure if it's true. There truly is a very strange reason for the company being called Bungie, and we daren't reveal it here. There are penalties leveled at those who reveal the deepest secrets. End quote. Regardless of how ominous or mysterious the name's origins may sound, Bungie is a studio wrought from extremely humble beginnings a studio developing in an environment few game studios had taken on even back in their beginning in 1991, the Macintosh. It's almost impossible to believe that they started with a game that sold less than 3,000 copies, with their current sales count of over 42 million copies sold from just their veritable Halo franchise alone, and almost 2 million sales worldwide for the release of their first game in the Destiny series. They are the creators of such classic franchises that defined so many players' childhoods, Marathon, Myth, 
Oni, Halo, and they're still defining childhoods as they go along with their latest blockbuster series, Destiny. They started as a company developing simple games for the Mac OS. As time has marched on, Bungie has become an icon of excellent storytelling, compelling gameplay, and epic musical scores, cementing their place as one of the most revered game developers in gaming history. This is the history of Bungie Inc. The History of Games with Tim Hosey. War. War never changes. I met you at the Torre da Firenze. Here to rescue you. Still a barrel roll! What is better, to be born good or to overcome your evil nature through great effort? Right man in the wrong place can make all the difference in the world. A man chooses. The slave obeys. Stay a while and listen. Chapter 1. Pathways to Power Bungie's story begins with one man in college in 1990. Alex Seropian was a senior at the University of Chicago, pursuing a degree in mathematics, which would have been computer science had the university offered it at the time. Bungie wouldn't exist as a corporation for another year. It was at this time that what Bungie says is their first game would release, though it came prior to the formation of the company. It was called Gnop, which is Pong spelled backwards, and was written as a clone of Pong, but for the Mac. It was released almost 20 years after the original Pong game came out. Released as a free game, it saw its fair share of popularity among Mac users. The year shifted to 1991. 1991 was a huge year for gaming, in which several of the key players in the industry, some of which are still around and affecting games today, were founded. Not only was this the year Bungie became an entity, but it was also the same year as Epic Games, Blizzard Entertainment, id Software, Radical, Stardock, Techland, and 3DO. All these game studios were born in 91. After Knopf's release, Seropian graduated from the University of Chicago in the spring. He had a choice to make. He's quoted as saying, It came down to job security or start a business. Job security, start a business. I figured, oh, what the hell, I'll start a business. Ever since high school, I had wanted to start a computer software company, but you can't really sell software unless you have a product. He incorporated as Bungie Software Products Corporation in Chicago, Illinois, operating out of his apartment. Now Seropian began work on a top-down tank shooter entitled Operation Desert Storm, a game set in the ongoing conflict in the Middle East at the time. The game featured 20 levels, with the end boss being Saddam Hussein's head in giant form. It even included a glossary of military terms to get past the copy protection, which, at the time, was usually a question asked at startup that could only be answered from the manual that came with the game, as there was only scarce internet and Google wouldn't exist for several more years. Seropian sought the funding for the game project from friends and family, putting the boxes together and putting the application on discs himself. The game sold a modest 2,500 copies, encouraging Seropian to look for his next project. 
he found that project in Jason Jones, who was porting his role-playing game Minotaur The Labyrinths of Crete from the Apple II to the Apple Macintosh. He said, quote, After college, I wrote and packaged a game, but technology was growing faster than I could keep up with it. I'd heard Jason was pretty swift and that he was already working on this game called Minotaur. So really, I called him out of a need to find more product, end quote. It was around this time that Seropian managed to convince Jones, whom he knew from the class Introduction to Artificial Intelligence at University of Chicago, to join Bungie. An older version of the Bungie site quotes Jones as saying, quote, I didn't really know Alex in the class. I think he actually thought I was a dick because I had a fancy computer. He was looking for another thing to publish after Operation Desert Storm, so we published Minotaur, and it was after that we set up a partnership. What I liked about him was that he never wasted any money, end quote. Minotaur was a dungeon crawler, the tagline being, kill your enemies, kill your friends' enemies, kill your friends, which makes reappearances in multiplayer screens and later Bungie releases, Myth, The Fallen Lords, and Halo 3. What set Minotaur apart from the other games in its class was the focus on multiplayer. In a much-before-its-time rendition of current online-only games, Minotaur featured multiplayer with friends over Apple Talk protocol or point-to-point protocol with a modem. The single-player mode was all but non-existent, serving to offer the players a chance to explore and discover how the items in the maze behaved with no real task or end for the player. The engine for Minotaur would be licensed to Paranoid Productions to create the single-player game Odyssey, The Legend of Nemesis, which released in 1996. While Jones finished the coding of Minotaur, Seropian took care of design and publishing of the game. The game released in 1992, its sales reaching similar heights to Operation Desert Storm, with about 2,500 copies sold. This same year, id Software would release Wolfenstein 3D, a 3D first-person shooter that along with Doom, which released a year later, would be credited with bringing popularity to the genre on PC. Wolfenstein 3D is also the primary template for the run-and-gun FPS type, which is so readily seen in games like Doom. On top of this, Wolfenstein 3D was an inspiration for Jason Jones, who saw the game while living in a dorm at the University of Chicago. He created a 3D game engine for the Mac that simulated walls with trapezoids and rectangles. Bungie decided to stick with developing for Macintosh, as the market was more open and Jones had much more experience with the platform. Seropian took charge as businessman and marketer, while Jones took responsibility for the technical and creative side of the business. Jones was quoted as saying, Yeah, I grew up on the Apple II and the C code for PCs, though, before I even went to school. This was the heyday of PCs, with Wing Commander and stuff. The PC market was really cutthroat, but the Mac market was all friendly and lame, so it was easier to compete. The game engine was originally intended to be for a 3D port of Minotaur, but the decision to migrate the top-down perspective of the game to a 3D world was nixed, due in part to the perspective change not meshing well with the gameplay, and also due in part to the reliance of the game on networks and modems, which were a rarity at the time and would negatively affect sales. They decided to create a story-driven title, which ended up being developed as the game Pathways into Darkness, an adventure game in first person. They brought in Colin Brent, a friend of Jones, to create the art and creature design. The player, representing a special forces soldier, was tasked with stopping a god creature from awakening and destroying the earth within five in-game days. 
It had branches affecting the ending with players choices leading to Earth's destruction, burying the creature under tons of rock with a nuclear device or a Pyrrhic victory. This episode of the History of Games and the Insert Coin Theater podcast will resume after these short messages. I'm proud to announce that Insert Coin Theater is now partnered with GamerGoo. Get a grip with GamerGoo, a specially formulated hand goo to stop your hands from sweating, eliminating slip, increasing grip, and boosting your energy and focus. Visit GamerGoo.com and use discount code ICT at checkout to save 10%. Hey there, my name is Tim, the host of the Insert Coin Theater podcast. Did you know that by sponsoring the ICT podcast, your product will be advertised to dozens and potentially hundreds of listeners? More yet, your product could be broadcast live to hundreds of viewers four nights a week during my live streams. Here's your chance to get in at the ground level with a new and exciting show. Reach out to me at insertcointheater at gmail.com and let's talk about how we can bring your product to hundreds or even thousands of potential new customers. Once again, reach out to me at insertcointheater at gmail.com. Chapter 2. Running Two Marathons Pathways into Darkness became Bungie's first major commercial success. The game was also a critical success, with Inside Mac Games reviewer John Bloom writing that Pathways was, quote, one of the best Macintosh games I've ever played, end quote, and that it was, quote, another leap in technological wizardry, end quote. Macworld's Stephen Levy commented that the creatures in the game were, quote, something that might have come from a brain merge of Tim Burton and Rice and Hieronymus Bosch, end quote. While the game was harder than Jones intended, which was reflected in critical reviews, it was lauded with awards including Macworld's Best Role-Playing Game, Inside Mac Games' Adventure Game of the Year Award, and a spot in the Mac User 100, a listing of the top 100 software products on the Mac for the year. The game smashed what one article referred to as, quote, embarrassingly low, end quote, sales estimates. Pathways was made available in retail stores and via mail order catalog in 15 countries, including Japan, seeing sales well into the seven figures. Bungie had done it. They now had the funding to move shop out of Seropian's apartment and into an office building, a place the company deemed a, quote, unquote, converted mission in front of a swanky crack house. Jason Jones told a humorous story about their malfunctioning T1 line in this upscale building. Quote, nobody knew where it was actually located, so we just wandered around looking. We ended up finding this locked door to the basement. The AT&T guy was ready to give up, but we needed our internet connection pretty desperately. So I broke the door down. I guess the building used to be some kind of weird religious school, and the basement was filled with these tiny desks. You know, the ones with the seat built in and there was a near empty swimming pool with about six inches of sludge at the bottom. The T1 line was actually hooked up in an abandoned boiler room covered in about 40 years of corrosion. End quote. Bungie also hired its first full-time employee, Doug Zartman, who started as support for Pathways into Darkness in May of 1994 and eventually migrated to the position of public relations manager for the company. The next project the company started work on was originally intended as a sequel to Pathways into Darkness, announced at Macworld San Francisco as Marathon, in which this early concept and build would come to be referred to as Marathon Zero. It was treated there as an improved version of Pathways, leading to the hiring of several new people and the revamping of the graphics engine and development of the game's netcode. 
It progressed into something that would turn the studio into a leading Mac developer and eventually into the behemoth we know today, being shown off at Macworld Boston later that year with an original story and the new graphics system. According to their history, Bungie learned two lessons from Pathways. A game is strengthened by a story, and strong visuals can help tell that story. Both of these lessons eventually turned into the seminal marathon we know today. Marathon's story takes place in the distant future on board a multi-generational spacecraft called the UESC Marathon. The player assumes the role of a superhuman cyborg who has to fight off alien slavers invading the ship. The plot is primarily explained through the use of computer terminals throughout the ship, with many cryptic messages and log entries describing the universe and the situation you find yourself in. The game features Leela, the ship's primary AI, and Durandal, a lesser AI on board the vessel, who help or hinder, the player throughout the game's story. It was with this game that introduced several thematic elements that would recur in all future Bungie games. One is the concept of AI rampancy, or artificial intelligence that becomes self-aware or corrupted, and eventually, through a series of stages similar to those experienced by those who suffer a great loss, gains a desire for power over their creators. The obsession with the number seven is another. Theories from fans abound about connections of each game to a greater universe connecting pathways into darkness to all subsequent games Bungie has produced, as references to prior releases can be found both during gameplay or in the storyline produced around each game. While Bungie has never confirmed this, they continue to drop references to previous games in each of their newer releases in some way or another. Marathon was a huge leap forward in many ways. It was the first major game release to offer mouse-controlled free look that is standard in shooters today, giving users the ability to look up and down in addition to typical left-right looking, which was a staple in Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. It was graphically outstanding during the time, with visuals comparative to other releases around that time, such as Doom and Descent. The game's network play even supported voice chat over the Mac microphone. The game launched in December of 1994 to boisterous acclaim from users and press alike. Fans who witnessed the game at Macworld Expo in 1995 ended up purchasing every copy Bungie had brought with them to the event. The game went on to earn a Macworld Game Hall of Fame award, much like Pathways into Darkness did. Shortly after the release of Marathon, Bungie.com was launched onto the still young internet, making way for Bungie's legendary connection with fans that persists today and is one of the primary reasons for their rabid fan base across so many of their titles. The success of Marathon led to the announcement of Marathon 2 Durandal in July of 1995. Marathon 2 takes place 17 years after the events of the first entry in the series. Durandal, one of the AI from the first game, sends the player and an army of ex-colonists to assault the homeworld of the antagonists from the first game in the hopes of forestalling an alien invasion of Earth. Marathon 2 ran on an expanded version of the original Marathon engine, featuring several improvements such as greater field of vision, the addition of liquids, swimming, and oxygen, higher resolution and color depth, a cooperative single-player mode, and ambient sounds to add more atmosphere to the game. The game released on November 24, 1995. It is the first Bungie game to release on Windows a bit later in 1996. This is also the only Marathon game to be released on the Xbox series of consoles, seeing an Xbox Live Arcade release on the Xbox 360 in 2007. This placed Bungie in the realm of multi-platform development, occurring around a period of massive growth for the company, seeing a sales swing upward of 
1996 was a big year for Bungie. It saw the Marathon 2 release on Windows, and Marathon and Marathon 2 were bundled together into a port to the ill-fated Bandai and Apple collaboration console called the Pippin. Bungie published two titles in 96, Abuse for the developer Crack.com and Weekend Warrior for developer Pangea Studios, both macOS titles. Finally, for the third year in a row, Bungie released a new Marathon game entitled Marathon Infinity, exclusively for the Mac. Once again, the Marathon franchise continued to innovate and push its limits in terms of story. While technologically very similar to the previous game in the franchise, the story focuses on jumping between space and time, the player starting as if the events in the second game did not occur, then jumping to another point where the Durandal AI had not captured the player in the first game, and through a series of events manipulating what happened in the previous two games. With this, the trilogy that transformed Bungie into a multi-platform developer came to a close. Publishing several games during this time established the company as a force to be reckoned with. Bungie then set its sights on the next big project, which everyone anticipated to be another first-person shooter. What came around was a surprise to everyone. Thank you very much for listening to my first foray into the history of games. I hope you truly enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure to write. I have many other ideas, and I still have several chapters left of the Bungie Studios episode to finish. Chapter 3 of Myth and Microsoft is currently on the writing blocks and is almost complete, and I ultimately want to dive more into it. I won't be continuing this series next week. However, you can expect to see it within the next month or so. I would very much like to continue this, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know if you liked it. I really am grateful that you took the time to listen. I hope that if you are interested in connecting and giving me ideas, not only for this podcast, for uh, the history of games, but for the actual Insert Coin Theater podcast, which we do deep dives into hard hitting topics and the like, please let me know. Hit me up uh, twitter.com slash insert coin Tim. Touch base with me on Discord. Discord.gg slash ICT is the community. And you can touch base with me on Discord DMs. They're open to everybody. Insert Coin Theater, hashtag 6969. And of course, you can always email me at insertcointheater at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to engage with you and see what inspires you, what you're enjoying, and if there are any suggestions you have. Please feel free to also ask any questions that you have using the hashtag on Twitter, hashtag AskICT. That's hashtag AskICT. If you use that hashtag, um, I'll be compiling those and trying to do monthly Q&A sessions during this podcast to kind of try to answer and touch base on my thoughts on certain things. And maybe you can pick my brain a little if you have any questions or ideas or anything like that. Once again, thank you so much for your time and spending your precious, hard earned minutes listening to what I have to say about Bungie Studios and gaming in general. It means the world to me. I much appreciate it. And I hope to see you next time on the Insert Coin Theater podcast. The music during the breaks was by Kevin McLeod. It was itty bitty 8-bit and home base groove. Sorry, I lost the name of that one for a second. And of course, the music that you heard in the intro was by the ever so amazing Ben Burns. The music you're hearing now is by Ben Burns, Abstraction. Um, The song is called Sanctuary. Uh, You can find his music at abstractionmusic.com. You can find Kevin McLeod's at incompetech.com. And of course, please check out the ever so lovely 
Stephen Chesterton, aka Devious Furball, at goldenvo.co. He's an amazing person. They all are incredible, and please give them your support. If you are interested in supporting my efforts and supporting this podcast, please visit my Patreon, patreon.com slash ICT. Drop a dollar, drop $5, drop whatever you wish uh, at a monthly rate to help me out. This would be amazing to be able to do full-time and spend more time researching the history of games and giving you guys this podcast. Thanks again, and have a lovely rest of your day.